Kohler Smart Toilets introduce a new standard of design and cleanliness, sculptural forms, intuitive technology, and total personalization with integrated warm water cleansing, heated seats, and warm air dryers. For peace of mind and convenience, there are touchless lids, seats, flush, and a self-sanitizing bidet wand. Now you can even use voice commands with Numi 2.0, featuring built-in Amazon Alexa. Explore the complete lineup at Kohler.com slash Smart Toilets and discover what you've been missing. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 93. This episode is the first of Three shows about something called the backfire effect, a well-documented and much-studied psychological phenomenon that you've likely encountered quite a bit lately. Simply put, when your deepest convictions are challenged by contradictory evidence, your beliefs tend to get stronger, not weaker. And the research shows that when your strongest beliefs are challenged, Yes, you might experience some temporary weakening of your convictions, some softening of your certainty, but most people rebound from that and not only reassert their original belief at its original strength, but go beyond that and dig in their heels, deepening their resolve over the long run. Now, we're going to explore this in three ways. First, in this episode, what we know about the neurological underpinnings of this phenomenon. Then, we will spend time with the scientist who named the backfire effect and continue to study it. Then, in our third episode, we will speak with scientists who are now studying how to avoid, prevent, and combat it. So, to get this episode about the brain and belief started, I'd like you to consider a question. Paper or plastic? If you live in the United States, it's very likely that you've been asked at the checkout of a convenience store, a grocery store, or some kind of store whether you would prefer plastic bags or paper bags to put your stuff in. You may have even brought your own bags to bypass this philosophical conundrum. This is one of those moments, one of those strange moments common to all of our lives when all of us get to sample what we think, what we believe, and then make a judgment and a decision based on the strength of those beliefs. So with that in mind, what do you usually pick? What have you picked in the past? And why? And I suppose within that, there's this deeper question, which is, which do you think is the better choice every time? So let me ask that question a different way. Do you agree with this statement? Paper bags are better for the environment than plastic bags. Now, if you think that, let me introduce some information that might change your mind. Making a paper bag uses 
three times the amount of water it takes to make a plastic bag. Only 24% of people reuse paper bags, while 67% of people reuse plastic bags. The production of paper emits 70% more air pollution than does the production of plastic bags. And it takes 91% more energy to recycle a pound of paper than it does a pound of plastic. Now, after hearing these facts, after hearing these counter-arguments, has your belief in the idea that paper bags are better for the environment than plastic bags, if that's what you believed, has your belief softened in any way? Well, the research suggests that, yeah, it probably did. And unless this was a very, very deeply held belief, you probably are prepared to give it up and to replace it with this new idea about paper versus plastic. There's a whole Wikipedia page for stuff like this. It's called the List of Common Misconceptions. It's really fun to go there. I think they update it pretty regularly. It has things like, you know, you shouldn't sear meat to, uh, to, you know, to make it juicy because it doesn't actually do that. It makes it lose moisture. And things like Buddha was not obese. The fat, chubby, laughing Buddha is actually another person. The word vomitorium in relation to Roman history has nothing to do with eating. It is a place where you enter and exit the stadium. Napoleon wasn't short. Santa Claus and his red robes was not created by the Coca-Cola company. The War of the Worlds did not cause a big panic. Einstein didn't fail at math in school. And the Great Wall of China is not the only human-made object that's visible from space. Lots of objects are visible from space. In fact, the Great Wall of China is almost impossible to see from space. There are a gazillion more of these sort of facts that update your model of reality. Things you might have believed, and then you hear them, and then you go, hmm, okay, well, I guess I was wrong about that, and you move on. But there is another category of beliefs that we seem to treat differently than these fungible beliefs. Scientists call them cherished beliefs or firmly held beliefs or protected values, among other labels. And oftentimes, those beliefs are political in nature, but they don't have to be. It could be about, you know, Star Wars or Star Trek or something like that. But if they are political in nature, for example, if you're a liberally leaning individual, those beliefs might include the idea that the United States should reduce its military budget, or that gun laws should be more restrictive, or that welfare and food stamp programs are good and vital and necessary to a thriving society. If you are a conservative, you might have strong beliefs on those issues that run counter to those arguments. But the point is that these beliefs are somehow qualitatively different from things like, you know, facts about the Great Wall of China or something like that. For example, let's take this gun control belief. For those of you who agree with this statement, the laws regulating gun ownership in the United States should be made more restrictive. If you believe that, notice what happens in your body, in your brain, in yourself when I suggest to you these common counter-arguments. Number one, 98% of gun crimes are committed with stolen guns. So, you know, law-abiding people, they're not the ones doing these crimes. Why make the law more restrictive. Number two, every year, around 100,000 law-abiding gun owners defend themselves against violent crime, and in those cases, more than nine times out of ten, they do so without firing a single shot. Or, three, more people accidentally drown each year than have been killed in gun-related accidents since 1980. And here's the last one, 
10 times more people are murdered with kitchen knives each year than are killed by assault weapons. Now, of course, I'm cherry-picking these arguments out of a thousand more arguments, a million more arguments that can be made in either direction to support either side of that issue, just like I did with the paper versus plastic argument. But what I want you to notice is, doesn't it feel different inside of you when you consider these two different beliefs? Don't you feel like you protect one kind of belief and not the other? Could it be possible that a different portion of your brain comes online when you start to weigh the evidence for or against certain issues, protected issues. Well, that was the hypothesis recently put forth by some neuroscientists at the University of Southern California. Uh, my name is Dr. Sarah Gimble, and I am a senior research associate at the USC Brain and Creativity Institute. I'm Jonas Kaplan. I'm a cognitive neuroscientist at USC's Brain and Creativity Institute. So what goes on there? Well, we do neuroscience research here, and we try to do research that is relevant to human life. Um, so instead of uh, studying things that are um, fairly uh, low-level neuroscience, we, spend, we study things that are related to cognition and social life, and we try to make our research relevant for, for people's real lives. Yeah, there's a lot of different kinds of research that goes on at the Brain and Creativity Institute. We study everything from emotions to gratitude to how music affects development, the study of music affects development, and then this most recent work, which has looked at uh, political and non-political beliefs and how... Um, what's happening in our brain when those beliefs are challenged and how that activity might differ when we're willing to change our mind or not about those kinds of beliefs. In fact, those statements I provided you earlier and asked you to estimate how strongly you believed in them and then the counterarguments that tried to knock them down, those came from Sarah and Jonas's most recent paper, which they wrote with co-author Sam Harris, The Neural Correlates of Maintaining One's Political Beliefs in the Face of counter-evidence. And that's what we're going to talk about in this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. How much do we really know on a neurological basis about what is going on inside our heads when we decide we don't believe something, when we think we notice that our beliefs are being challenged and we resist? How rich is the scientific literature when it comes to belief and belief change and resisting that change? It's relatively sparse. Very sparse. I mean, we don't we don't know a lot. There there are very few topics in neuroscience where we can say we really know a lot. Very very sparse. Um, but this one, relatively speaking, we know less. There's definitely some work on on uh, persuasion and um, on uh, some of our own work on the neural basis of of belief. Um, but there's really really very little. So I think we're we're just taking the first steps on this. My name is David McCraney. This is the You Are Not So Smart podcast, and in this episode, we are going to explore what we know about the neuroscience behind why people discount evidence that contradicts their belief, why people don't change their minds when the evidence is clear that they really ought to. Why do we protect some beliefs and not others? All of that in this episode after this break.
This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, and I'm very proud to have BetterHelp as a sponsor. I was using BetterHelp before they became a sponsor, and I was very excited to learn that they wanted to sponsor this program. I have recommended BetterHelp to people. I know people right now who I've recently onboarded. I had a friend who had a really difficult medical event and was experiencing a completely new range of anxieties and feelings and concerns, and I recommended therapy. I'd never gone to therapy before, and this helped. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. And the question is, time for what? If our time was unlimited, how would you use it? And the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what is that special thing? What is important to you? What is that thing that deserves to take that slot, that precious time? How do you make that a priority? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. If you're thinking of starting therapy, I really recommend giving BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and you will get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do that several times and really lock in with a therapist that is able to generate with you that dynamic that's so important. I believe you should be in therapy. I believe everyone should be in therapy for a period of time at least in their lives to sort this out. What's important to you? How do you make it work? And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S. So you want to make better decisions and you have a business. You have a business and you want to make better decisions in that business. You need some sort of key performance indicators, a system for measuring what you're up to, what you're doing, measurable values that demonstrate how effectively your company is achieving your key business objectives. That's a KPI. And I have a recommendation for you. It's called NetSuite. You should be using NetSuite. Here's here's why. So your business gets to a certain size and the cracks start to emerge. Every business that's doing well, even if it's just starting to kind of do well, it'll start to form some fissures here and there. Things you used to do in a day will start taking a week, and you'll have all sorts of manual processes that just, there's too many, you can't get to everything, and you don't have one source of truth to make sense of it all, to make those better decisions. If that's you, you should know about three numbers. These are three numbers you should know. 37,000, 25, and 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. That's a big number. 37,000. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system. Streaming accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. 25? 25 years? 25 years of helping businesses do more with less. 
close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs, and one, because your business is one of a kind. You don't want some sort of operation or app that's just made for whoever comes along. No, you get a customized solution for creating those KPIs that you need. One efficient system with one source of truth made for one business, your business. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow, all in one place. When you have everything you need in one place, all these biases, all these fallacies that I talk about on this program, it's an incredible way to apply everything you learn about making better decisions by having one source from which to pull your evidence, your information. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance for nothing, absolutely free. You just go to netsuite.com slash not so smart. You get it for free. That's netsuite.com slash not so smart to get your own KPI checklist. One more time, netsuite.com slash not so smart. And now we return to our program. My name is David McCraney, and this is the You Are Not So Smart podcast. Just a few weeks ago, neuroscientists Jonas Kaplan, Sarah Gimbel, and Sam Harris published a paper in Nature. It detailed the findings of their research trying to answer this question. They wanted to know what would happen if you put people with very strong beliefs into a brain scanner and then challenged those beliefs. What if those people then changed their minds, but on some things they didn't? What if they resisted on some topics, but softened on others? What areas of the brain would be most active during all of that? And would those areas correlate to anything we already know about the brain? I had done some research um, a while ago with my colleague Sam Harris, and we did some work on the neural basis of religious belief. We were interested in what happens in the brain when people believe things versus disbelieve things. And so we'd done this study back in 2008 or so. We published that study, maybe it's 2009. And we were thinking about what would be the uh, most interesting follow-up research to that. What, what did we really want to know about the neural basis of belief? This topic of belief change just jumped out to us as the most important thing. So what happens in the brain when people are either willing to change their mind or not? You know, we spend so much time discussing and arguing and, and trying to persuade each other, and it just seems so rare to actually witness someone change their minds. Um, and not only is it rare, but it seems rather important to be able to change our minds. Um, and, you know, what, what is the point of having all these discussions and arguments and in all the realms that are interest us most for us, science, but also politics? We need to be able to uh, move each other a little bit if, if our conversations are to be fruitful at all. So understanding how we resist changing our minds and when we actually do change our minds seemed like the most important thing to us to look into. So we designed this study to be able to look at people who self-identified as um, having strong political beliefs and we um, tested that before they came in. And then we really had this opportunity to challenge these strongly held beliefs while we were looking at the activity that was happening in their brain. To do this, the first thing Jonas and Sarah had to accomplish was 
gather together subjects with strong beliefs. And the easiest way to do that, they decided, was to choose political beliefs instead of, say, beliefs about farming in medieval Europe or whether Batman versus Superman was a good movie. Instead, they put out a call for people who self-identified as strongly liberal. We put out flyers, um, releases, emails, social media. Yeah, we recruited people, uh, 40 people who were strongly uh, self-identified as liberals. We used to screen questionnaires to find these people. Once they had their subjects, they asked them to rate the strength of their beliefs on a scale from one to seven on a variety of issues, some political, some not. We had a series of political statements and a series of non-political statements. We wanted to be able to present them with topics that we knew that they felt very strongly about. We wanted to compare what's going to happen when people really resist changing their minds. For the political statements, that wasn't difficult because most of the political issues were framed in a way that supported liberal values. And so liberal people stated that they strongly agreed with those statements. So we had political statements, things like... um, the taxes on the wealthy should be increased or um, welfare and food stamp programs offer necessary help to the poor. Laws regulating gun ownership in the U.S. should be made more restrictive. Um, abortion should be legal. Gay marriage should be legal in the United States. We expected that people would be very firm on their political beliefs, given that they had strong political beliefs. Um, and we compared those to non-political things they claimed to believe just as strongly. Those were a little trickier. To be included in the study, each person had to rate their belief as a 6 or a 7 out of 7. So Jonas and Sarah presented lots of non-political statements like... Uh, the ability to read early in childhood is usually a sign of intelligence. Um, Some things that were more factually based, like Thomas Edison invented the light bulb. Things like taking a daily multivitamin improves one's health. Once they had a group of subjects who believed equally strongly, a six or a seven out of seven, about a series of political and non-political statements, they moved on to the next stage of the experiment, the MRI, the brain scanner. Yep. So they come to the lab, we put them in the MRI machine, and while they're in there, we show them this statement that we already know that they believe in from their pretest. And following that, we show them five pieces of counter evidence for that statement. Yeah, that's right. So they would see each statement and then they would see five challenges or counter arguments against that statement. So for the topic, um, Thomas Edison invented the light bulb, for instance. <laughs> this is one that we saw a lot of change in people's belief. Um, One of the most, actually. Um, Some of the challenges included things like nearly 70 years before Edison, Humphrey Davy demonstrated an electric lamp to the Royal Society. Um, Edison hired a young physicist named Francis Upton to help work on the light bulb. He had the breakthrough discovery that led to the light bulb development. Um, Edison's patent for the electric light bulb was invalidated by the U.S. Patent Office, who found that it was based on work of another inventor. And what kind of political counterarguments did you offer? So for a political example, this is the, um, the statement was the laws regulating gun ownership in the United States should be made more restrictive. And the challenges were things like 98% of gun crimes are committed with stolen guns. People who possess guns illegally are unlikely to obey new laws regulating gun ownership. Um, Every year, around 100,000 law-abiding gun owners defend themselves against violent crime and more than nine times out of 10 without firing a shot. People accidentally drown each other 
more people accidentally drown each other each year than have been killed in gun-related accidents since 1980. And they'd see, they'd see the original statement again, and we'd ask them after being challenged, now how strongly do you believe this statement on a scale from one to seven? So what that does for us is we have a measure of how strongly they believed before they went into the scanner, which we know is either a six or a seven because that was the criteria for it being included. And then we have their rating also in the scanner, and we can take those two numbers and by subtracting them, get a measure of their belief change on that topic related to the counter evidence that they just saw. And we found, as expected, that people change their minds more. They soften their beliefs more for the non-political statements compared to the political statements. We did actually see some softening for the political statements. So they would um, reduce their belief strength by maybe a, a point or so. But, but the uh, reduction was, was uh, statistically much bigger for the non-political statements. Now, um, I can immediately feel a difference in my thinking on related to these two topics, right? Um, and, <laughs> and, and so, like, and this is the great mystery of this. And, and, and <laughs> I mean, um, I I feel an unbidden, uncontrolled, uh, and probably a lot of it non-conscious response to this new information. Uh, with Edison, I'm like, okay, I was wrong about that. Uh, or, 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 or just simply... I didn't know that. Interesting. Added, added, added to my list of things that I know. Um, but with the gun stuff, and and you know whether either side that you're on, and I I, I uh, have spent a lot of my life in the deep south, so I've spent a lot of time around a lot of gun people, um, and I I can I can make I can play devil's advocate. And I can hear the argument already. Um, so, uh, but I can feel the quality of this information inside me uh, being digested differently. Um, and I'm assuming that that's what you found in the scanner as well. Is that true? That is true. Um, we found in the scanner that the more the more likely someone, or the more not likely, I should say, somebody was to change their minds, or the more stubborn they were about holding on to their beliefs, the more activity we saw in specifically two areas of the brain, one called the amygdala and one called the insular cortex. The insular cortex um, receives all kinds of information from the body, and so it, it's re really important for, for feeling things from your body. If you start to, to uh, sense that your heart, is, uh, heart rate is changing or, or your you're, you're sweating a little bit. Um, your insular cortex is involved in gathering all that information and kind of presenting it to the brain. And we found that people who engage their insular cortex more, and also the amygdala, which is another structure that's important for emotion, the people that engage those structures more when being challenged were less likely to change their minds. The amygdala, we know, tends to respond to threat. You know, if you were feeling somewhat threatened by this information or even threat in the sense of trying to protect what you already think in the context of this new information, we do see more activity in those regions when somebody is less likely to change their mind. And I think that's related to, to, to exactly that experience that you're describing. The creepy thing about this is I'm not in, I don't feel like I have any control over this. Like, I feel like Absolutely. It, it's happening to me. You know, it's, uh, it yes. it's like a placebo type. I mean, like I have, um, I'm, uh, I'm at the whim of the, of my meat, my meaty self and, and I'm having to, I'm having to, to, uh, deal with what's happening to me instead of choosing uh, what I'm going to think about this. 
Absolutely. You know, it, from the brain perspective, we actually find the same thing, which is that the response in the brain that we see is very similar to what would happen if, say, you were walking through the forest and came across a bear. Oh, okay, um, yeah. You know, your, your brain would have this automatic fight or flight where your adrenaline goes up and, you know, you either run or you fight and your body prepares to protect itself. And in that case, it's in terms of your physical well-being and your physical body. But what we're seeing in the brain is the same kind of response. So interestingly, the brain is not differentiating between physical harm and needing to have this fight or flight and more, quote unquote, like emotional or mental harm of, you know, something that's attacking this other part of yourself that isn't physical. But in terms of the brain, for us, it seems like it's it's looking at it in the same way. So the brain is perceiving a threat, some sort of potential harm, but what is it? What is so threatening? And what is being threatened? That's a great question. Um, From our research, one thing that we found is that overall, these political issues activate what we call the default mode network more than the non-political issues. Now, the default mode network is an interconnected set of regions in the brain that we know to be more active when people are thinking about things related to the self. What I think is that when these things become tied into the mechanisms in the brain for incorporating things into our personal identity, into our autobiographical self, our kind of story of who we are, that, that's when this happens. So the brain kind of takes it upon itself to now protect this thing as if it's part of us. I mean, you've got to remember that the brain's job, is its first and primary job is to protect ourselves. The brain is basically a big, complicated, um, sophisticated machinery for self-protection. And this, that, that extends beyond our physical self to our psychological self. And once these things become part of our psychological self, I think they're then afforded all the same protections that the brain gives to the body. Given this finding that that uh, set of regions is more active when people are presented with challenges to their political beliefs than they are with challenges to their non-political beliefs, it sort of shows us that these political issues have really become integrated into a person's identity and into their sense of self. Mm -hmm. So... My guess in what you're feeling with these two different topics and challenges to these two different topics is that, um, you know, the political one, something like gun control, really has become part of your core identity and your body wants to protect that as part of the self, whereas you probably have no stake in Thomas Edison and if he invented the light bulb or not. And so the body doesn't have that same response in terms of protecting self and protecting part of the identity. Well, so... uh, a real enigma for me in this is how did these how does this set of information these words these arguments how do they become categorized as political and thus you know part of my identity and they must be protected versus these other things i think about things like climate change versus uh you know volcanoes right so like the mm-hmm. like if you talk to a geologist if you if you hear a geologist if somebody shares some geologists 
study on Facebook about something and it has nothing to do with climate change, you know, and you don't know much about it as a lay person, you're going to be like, okay, well, that's a thing I know now. But if it's about climate change, then all of a sudden people become very interested. What's the consensus and where did it come from? And um, I don't know, scientists in the 70s said this. And so even though, you know, empirically, uh, you know, these are just, these are just facts coming from uh, academic silos, but people respond to them differently. So obviously something has happened to this kind of information in the brains of those people versus the other kind of information. And I'm wondering if you have any insight into how does something like climate change, which should just be a neutral uh, topic about how the world works, how does that in the minds of people who don't really know anything about climate change, how does that become politicized? How does it become a protected uh, value, a protected piece of information? I wish I had an answer for that. <laughs> it's an excellent question that is so incredibly important right now. And having actually done a study right before this about protected values, um, and then this one about belief change, we still do not know how that happens okay. or why that happens. That's good, though. I mean, I mean, you know, it's a that's science. I mean, that's, that's, that's great. Um, well, I want to know. And when you find out, please call me. Um, the, Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> we want to know too. <laughs> um, the part of that seems so counterintuitive because I would, you would assume, I would assume that a, um, an organism that has, that depends so much on, on the type of complex cognition that we do, um, that it would be, beneficial to have sort of a Bayesian approach to updating your priors. And when you have a belief and you're confronted with counter evidence that you would um, take that evidence and you would readily and eagerly, uh, you know, alter your beliefs so that you'd have a more accurate model of reality going forward. But um, your research seems to indicate that for some things we do that easily and for some things we don't do that at all. And it seems like uh I mean, what is the adaptive function of this behavior seem to be, what is it, why is this, how is this adaptive in any way when it seems like it would be more adaptive to update your, your priors? What do you think about that? I think there's probably some value in consistency. So if you're building a model of the world, um, you want that model of the world to have some kind of stability to it. Otherwise, it isn't really useful. If your model falls apart when the wind blows, uh, it's not a very... Uh, useful model. And so I think when constructing models of the world, especially when we're collecting, constructing collective models of the world, models that we share with other people, that there's uh, some value to their consistency. If our model changes all the time, it's going to um, uh, not connect us to other people in the same way, if their model isn't changing in the same way. So I think there, you're right that there's, there's some value in being able to update our beliefs, but I think that's balanced against some kind of value for consistency. I think a lot of it comes back to this idea of group identity and how self-identity relates to group identity. Mm. Um, and part of that is that, let's say, when I'm presented with you know, counter evidence about gun control, that I decide, okay, you know, maybe, maybe I was wrong. Maybe we shouldn't have increased gun control in the U.S. And that change in a pretty core value for me doesn't go with my group identity. It doesn't go with my family identity. It really puts me at odds with, you know, everybody that is a part of my life and everybody that I surround myself with. And 
the question becomes like, is it worth it to have that, you know, updated uh, value or updated thought based on some evidence to put yourself sort of against everybody around you? And I think often the answer is no. Um, and clearly, for, sometimes it's yes, and for some people it's yes. But it's very hard, I would speculate, to really change a core belief that not only is part of who you are as yourself, but also helps to identify what kind of, you know, social group or intellectual group you belong to and the people with whom you surround yourself. Yeah, I mean, it's complicated. I think there's a lot of different forces at play. And a lot of these forces that work on the sort of social cultural level uh, are really important in terms of pulling people's opinions. I mean, we can see people's opinions change in very short amount of times when there are social factors at play. So I, I saw a survey recently about how uh, Republicans' opinions about uh, their favorability towards Russia has changed <laughs> just in the, in the past few months since Trump was elected. The number of Republicans who view Russia favorably went some, something like 10% up to about 30% in the course of just a couple of months. Um, and so I, I think there are always these kind of uh, social pressures that, that, that push on people and, and what becomes important at any given moment can change. I don't think it's necessarily a, uh, a case of just accumulating evidence and, and facts, although that, that does help. I, I think another thing to keep in mind here is that um, the way information is stored in the brain is that everything becomes related to everything else. We we don't store information as a new piece of information as a kind of uh, independent entity. We store information by connecting it to, to other things we know and intertwining it with, with other things we already have in mind. And so once you incorporate a piece of information into your worldview – Changing it is not as simple as just taking that one little piece out. It's already sort of built into the foundation of what you have. And, and it might be in some cases like, you know, you've built a house and maybe changing the door doesn't take much effort. But if you want to change a, a load-bearing wall that, you know, is part of the structure of the house, now you've got to start getting an architect in there to, to think about how to redesign your house. You know, you can't just pull the piece out. asked Jonas if he thought that their research provided some insight into the backfire effect, if it provides some new context, some new literature toward understanding why we do that, why when our deepest beliefs are challenged, we don't just protect those beliefs, those beliefs become stronger in the long run. I think there is a connection. I think some of the processes that are at work that underlie the backfire effect um, are, are are part of what we're um, part of what what are reflected in, in the results of our study. So when we're challenging people's beliefs, um, they're going to engage in a lot of the same processes that result in the backfire effect. And some of the things are things like strengthening your own position, thinking about the arguments for uh, the 
belief that you hold, discounting the evidence against it, questioning the sources, and all these processes we do to shore up our, the strength of our beliefs when they're challenged um, might be the things that lead to the backfire effect to our beliefs being stronger when they're challenged. And so we were getting a kind of a glimpse of what's happening in the brain when people do that process of, of shoring up their own beliefs. And I think, I think that is relevant to the backfire effect. So to bring this in for a landing, do you have any advice based on your research, based on your expertise, if we're going to move forward to get people who believe differently than us to accept facts that we believe are well-vetted, evidence that is credible, that is part of scientific consensus, when people resist that kind of evidence or call it fake news or whatever, do you have any advice for dealing with that situation? I prefer to think of it the other way around because I think it's more effective to think about how we can be flexible when encountering evidence that we disagree with. Okay, okay. Um, because in that case, we have control over what our reaction is a little bit more, right? Um, and I, I think kind of trying to separate uh, what we believe from who we think we are is really important. That if we try to define ourselves by the things that we do instead of the things that we believe, then we'll be uh, more open-minded and more flexible. Um, I think there are uh, some things that we can look into. We don't have good answers yet as to... Um, what's the best way to remain flexible? But we're going to look into some things like um, emotion regulation. Since emotion is important, if we can learn how to regulate our feelings and our emotions better in these situations where we feel challenged, does that leave us more um, open and less defensive? Um, so we'll be doing some research on that. Um, I'd like to see also some changes uh, at a cultural level, um, which is where I think your work is really important in uh, educating people about these biases and also in, um, I think, uh, moving away from stigmatizing being wrong. I think especially in the realm of, of politics, there's a, a kind of stigma against changing one's mind. And I think it would be nice instead if we uh, valued that um, Changing, changing your mind in the face of evidence instead of making people feel like it's something that, that you're, you're not stupid for, for being wrong. You're, you're only stupid for um, insisting on being wrong when you've uh, come up against evidence that suggests you are. Follow the Brain and Creativity Institute on Twitter at USCBCI or on Facebook at Brain and Creativity Institute. Jonas's website is jonaskaplan.com. Up next, a cookie and then the end credits. C. Cookie starts with C. Let's think of other things that starts with C. Uh, ah, who cares about other things? C is for cookie. That's good enough. On each episode of the You Are Not C. So Smart podcast, I eat a cookie baked from a recipe sent in by a listener or a reader, and the person who sends that recipe in 
and we pick and we make that cookie from the thing they sent in, that person gets a signed copy of the You Are Not So Smart book or its sequel, You Are Now Less Dumb. In this episode, the cookie that we are going to eat is, I have the paper in front of me, a cookie called Sugar Mint Cookies from Haley Martin. Haley writes, Greetings, David. I just started listening to your You Are Not So Smart podcast, and I love it. I am a stay-at-home mom, and I have a two-year-old boy, and it's nice to listen to something adult and engaging to my mind other than Mickey Mouse Clubhouse, which she says just doesn't do it for me, LOL. I love to bake, and once I learned you tested out cookies, I was all about sending you one of my favorites and my husband's too. I hope that you and your wife enjoy. Looking forward to more great podcast. Have a great new year. Haley Martin. And so this is butter and sugar and egg and vanilla and flour and baking powder and baking soda and mint pieces from a national leading mint brand. And then more sugar. <laughs> you uh, you cook them by making them in these little balls. You rub it into the sugar and you pat them down and you cook them. They are beautiful. They look like sort of, um, putting that away, sorry. They look uh, they're they're like uh, a sandy, khaki color, and they have a sparkling fool's gold quality on top of them. And there's a hint of some sort of chocolate chip type stuff underneath the surface. If you want to make these like all the other cookies, the recipe will be available at youarenotsosmart.com under the cookies tab. Okay, here I go. Mmm. Mmm. Oh, boy. Oh, I feel like a supernova has exploded in my mouth. Mm. New stars are being born in my teeth. Oh, man, that is so great. Yeah. Mm. Just an explosion of minty, fresh, tasty, sugary sparkles. Mm. A stellar nursery of flavors. Thank you, Haley Martin. A book is on its way. That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. For links to everything that we talked about in this episode, go to youarenotsosmart.com. For previous episodes, go to iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, boingboingpodcasts.com, or youarenotsosmart.com. That's right. We are part of the family of podcasts over at boingboingpodcasts.com. Check them out. Lots of great podcasts over there. We're happy to be part of that family. You can follow us on Twitter at NotSmartBlog or me at David McRaney. And we're on Facebook, just You Are Not So Smart, and all sorts of other places as You Are Not So Smart. The opening music is Clash by Caravan Palace. And the interstitial music, this is Banjo Apocalypse. The rest of it, an 8-bit artist called Snubbish. S-N-A-B-I-S-C-H. Two more episodes about the backfire effect coming up. One in two more weeks. See you then.
Kohler Smart Toilets introduce a new standard of design and cleanliness, sculptural forms, intuitive technology, and total personalization with integrated warm water cleansing, heated seats, and warm air dryers. For peace of mind and convenience, there are touchless lids, seats, flush, and a self-sanitizing bidet wand. Now you can even use voice commands with Numi 2.0, featuring built-in Amazon Alexa. Explore the complete lineup at Kohler.com smarttoilets and discover what you've been missing.